Hello and welcome to the Home Roots Podcast, where we feature cross-country check-ins with artists, producers, industry folks, community folks, house concert hosts, and impresarios who make up the interwoven network of music lovers, balladeers, and tune makers across the globe. Hi everybody, welcome to the Home Roots Podcast. It's your host Jackson Haldane here with another episode. Yeah, it's uh, as we record this, it's early November. We're in Winnipeg and COVID is spiking on us hard and it's reminding us that our mission here on the Home Roots Podcast to keep people uh, engaged and apprised of uh, the different creative ways that people are managing to shift in this in this time uh, it seems all that much more relevant in this little kind of panicky time we're having here. I gotta say, you know, if you if you live somewhere where the numbers have spiked, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Everybody gets on edge, and it's uh, you start questioning all the things you do and all your motivations. But uh, good lessons for us all to learn, I'm sure. And uh, while we uh, we sort of weather the storm, we can entertain ourselves with some interesting conversation. And uh, today's conversation is with a, a gentleman named Mike Stevens from Sarnia, Ontario, a harmonica virtuoso uh, who really his story is incredible. I won't get into too much of it here. He covers a lot of it for us in the interview. But needless to say, he is a, a charming soul and an incredible talent. And uh, he manages to uh, put those attributes to good work for himself and the rest of the world, if you ask me. So Tune in here, stick around, listen to an interview with Mike Stevens.
Mike Stevens, welcome to the Home Roots Podcast. Thanks, Jackson. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Oh, this is a, a real honor. You and your story, people, I think, know more about you than the average uh, harmonica playing bluegrasser. Uh, that's for sure. Um, and it, and it's and it's not just because of your musical exploits, although that's like a big part of uh, what draws people uh, to us and and who we sort of go to for interviews for this this podcast. But your story is wide and varied. I I want to try and touch on on a, on as much of it as we can. But I also sort of want to dig into a little bit of uh, how you've been lately, as as everyone's sort of navigating a bit of a change in their in their routines. It's it's always kind of it's curious to hear how uh, different folks kind of kind of pull that off. But maybe uh, for starters, because um, I've kind of hinted at a couple of things, but let's talk about bluegrass harmonica for just one second, because uh, that in and of itself is is a bit of a, a rabbit hole. What is a bluegrass harmonica? That's what I'd like to know. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. Um, certainly didn't start out to be one. Uh, it was a label that got stuck on me. And I'll give you the, the short version of the story. So um, there was a harmonica around the house when I was a kid. I picked it up and I just instantly made a sound that made me feel good. You know, with a harmonica, it's it's really like an extension of your vocal cords. Your, your body is the instrument and you stick this thing in your mouth that's almost like a speaker and you can let out some kind of a wail that feels good. It's not like you have to have the dexterity to do a flat nine sharp, you know what I mean? You can just make a sound that, that, uh, that feels good. So that's what drew me in when I was a little kid and I just kept playing. No one in my family played any music and, um, I did it just because it felt good. I'd imitate everything that I heard. And later on, uh, I found out I had synesthesia. So I, I hear music in color. And, uh, when I see color, makes a sound in my head. So as a kid, it meant that I had unlimited resources for uh, funneling through that harmonica because everything I saw was music. So I played and played and played and uh, didn't play out too much, but got really hooked on uh, for some reason. Um, I liked bluegrass. My parents might have had a bluegrass album or something around, but I also liked uh, Mississippi Sheiks and Tennessee Chocolate Drops, a lot of the old black string band music. We lived close to Detroit, so I could hear that stuff. We could hear, you know, everything from Sunhouse Death Letter to um, uh, Motown, you know, coming from the Big Eight in Detroit. So that just seeped into me when I was a kid because I had an older sister and the radio was always on. So it just kind of stewed. And I played on my own eight, ten hours a day um, like a maniac just because it felt so good. I didn't realize I was learning anything. And then there was an ad in the Sarnia paper that was looking for people to join a bluegrass band. And uh, Sarnia wasn't a real hotbed of bluegrass activity. So I applied and because they didn't get enough applicants, they took the harmonica player reluctantly. (laughs) So there I was, they were probably embarrassed to have me and I could play pretty good though. I knew the tunes, but they only let me play about two songs in a set. And it was kind of humiliating. I still was happy to be able to play, but just imagine if you know you can play all these tunes and uh, you get your two songs and then you go sit in the corner while you watch them fumble through the wrong chords and all that stuff, right? But that's okay. And and it was, um, I'm glad for the opportunity. Well, I, I left that band, joined another band where 
um, I started to write some of the music and really lead it and, uh, and use the harmonica like I always wanted to with, with rhythm and lead and pushes and just sort of using the strongest parts of a harmonica in that, in that bluegrass music that I love so much. And we won some awards and, uh, I'll get to the end of the story sooner or later. We won some awards and we were playing a big festival called in Carlisle, Ontario. Back in the day, Carlisle, it was the one man in Ontario. It was full of hippies and bikers and Bill Monroe would be there and Ralph Stanley would be there. And they had a big fence that separated us and them. And uh, when it rained, they had a big sliding mud pit and people would, I'll never forget, they took watermelons and they cut them off and they carved them out like Darth Vader helmets and stuck them on their heads. So all the juice and the seeds were running down and they'd be in the front row. I love that festival. So <laughs> I was playing that festival and little Roy Lewis from the Lewis family heard me play. And they were the first family of bluegrass gospel is, uh, was what they were called. And I mean, even Elvis was a fan of theirs. They were really influential bands. So they heard me and they said, Hey, would you like to come up and play a couple songs with us on stage? And I thought, yeah, sure. What the heck, you know, nothing to lose. And I went up and played with them and it went really well. We, we kind of burned the place down and I could keep up and the crowd went crazy and it was wonderful. I thought that would be the end of it. And then before they left, little Roy called me over and he said, Hey, got a proposition for you. And, and my wife, Jane was there at the time too. And little Roy said, look, if you're willing to follow the bus, all wherever we go, all through North America. He said, we can't pay you, but if you're willing to follow the bus, what we'll do is we'll plant you in the audience and I'll start a banjo tune and I'll stop in the middle of the banjo tune and I'll tell the audience, you know, what this song really needs is a harmonica. He said, and that's your cue to jump up and say, I have a harmonica. He says, well, we can't pay you. He said, you know, if, if you're willing to follow the bus in your car, We'll, we'll put you on every show that way, but you, we can't pay you. So I looked at Jane and explained it to her and, and said, you know, they can't pay us. Um, do you think we should do it? And uh, we both said, ah, we should do it. <laughs> so we had a little Mazda 323 with no air conditioning, and we followed that bus all over North America. And they'd plant me in the audience, and they'd start the banjo tune, and I'd jump up saying, I have a harmonica, and the crowd would gasp, right, because there were no harps in bluegrass at that time. And um, I'd play and generally burn the place down. It went really, really well. Then they took pity on me. They'd announced that I was a Canadian and probably poor kid doesn't know any better, right? And uh, they passed the hat, and I made more money than the bands on the bill and got a booking <laughs> for the next year. And that leap of faith is what started the bluegrass career and eventually uh, played a festival in Georgia that Jim and Jesse were on. And they invited me on stage to play. And afterwards, Jesse came back and he said, you need to be on the Grand Old Opry. So it was that crazy leap of faith. You know, we're not going to pay you. You're going to have to follow the bus. You're going to, you know, and we did that. We'd drive all night. I'd, um, I literally, Jane and I would, would get maybe six hours sleep over a four-day period and then race all the way back to uh, try and work a day job in between. And we raised our son that way. We kept going and raised our, our son, uh, Colin. He, he was sleeping in guitar cases, Jim McReynolds' guitar case when he was two weeks old, on the Opry when he was two weeks old. 
So yeah, but I was sorry, man. That's a long answer to a short question, but but it, you, there's no way to a short answer to to that question. So that's <laughs> that's all right. But I, I think it's amazing. I mean, a lot of people might not know, but one of the very earliest stars of the Opry was D. Ford Bailey. Oh yeah, so man, you, the, a great harmonica player. And so when you think about harmonica being maybe incongruous with country music to some degree, at least classic, you know, grand old Opry country music, that's that's not true at all. He was mm. a, a, a formal, you know, a sort of original member of the cast and uh and so i think you coming in there and really burning the harmonica for those audiences it must have made some of those old timers still uh on on the show remember back to to those days and and those halcyon days of the grand old opry that i'm sure that must have been a catalyst for a lot of conversations with some cool people you got it, man. Uh, we uh, always shared a dressing room with Bill Monroe, and Bill would always call me over. We played together a bunch, and Bill would call me over, and we'd play Evening Prayer Blues, and uh, we'd talk about DeFord, and Roy Acuff was my biggest champion at the Opry, and he used to call me DeFord all the time. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it goes on, and I can tell you a million stories, but um, no kidding, you know, this kid from Ontario working at a chemical plant you know, playing the Opry like that. And then on Sunday afternoons, going over to Brother Oswald's place, who was the Dobro player for Roy Acuff, and being in jam sessions with um, everybody from Chet Atkins to John Hartford to Earl Scruggs to, um, I mean, uh, on and on. I'm, I'm missing a million people, but it was like that constantly. We'd all play music together. And uh, it was like this crazy dream, and, and I was accepted, and really the old guys were the ones that really liked what I did. I mean, um, I didn't have any rules and I didn't follow, uh, any set pattern and I just played how it felt. And I, I, you know what I think the connection was is my favorite musicians were the ones that rode around in the back of trucks to get to their gigs. And it wasn't about money and it wasn't about how good you look on TV and it wasn't about the corporate sponsorship, any of that. They played because they loved it and it just so happened that it created this music and they struck gold and it happened for them. Much like, you know, you follow the bus but we can't pay you, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's inspiring. You know, that's that's a really incredible story. It makes me wonder, uh, as someone who's, you know, so you're from Sarnia, and were you exposed to any of the folk music scene that was going on in the 70s in Ontario? Was that something you were aware of while it was going on? I'm sure you've become aware of some of what was going on at that time, you know, from Stan Rogers to one person who in particular I'm curious about, because I think... He kind of goes before you a little bit on this harmonica bluegrass path is Willie P. Bennett and oh, his yeah. tenure with the with the Dixie Flyers. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so I mean, folk music in general tended to bubble up, but it would just be the hits. It would be the things that you might hear on mainstream radio or see on TV. But I wasn't that steeped into it. And and to be perfectly honest, back at that time, um, I don't know that it moved me that much. They they were more for me. I like things that groove and that, that are a little awkward and, and have noise and are jangly like a Sunhouse song, you know, like out of tune and out of time, but just a, a preaching message. And um, some of the early folk stuff for me was pretty smooth, um, but really powerful. I appreciate it now, but I probably didn't have the brains to appreciate it then. 
and I did hear Willie play Willie P. Bennett playing with the Dixie Flyers. Um, a wonderful, wonderful player. And what's really cool about Willie P. Bennett is you can talk about his harmonica playing, but it's no different than his songwriting ability or how he played on any other instrument. He um, these musical ideas sort of transcended uh, any individual instrument. He could express himself on any instrument and be really, really unique and really tell a story. I mean, with titles like Lonely One Car Funeral, man. You know, uh, like, yeah, a legendary guy, a legendary player. Yeah, uh, one of my heroes, and, and I, you know, I'm fortunate enough to become friends with him before he passed, too. And oh. uh, a real inspiration on, on, on me from a lot of different angles, but I... I you know, I had to wonder if the Dixie Flyers had crossed your path before you ever got on stage with a bluegrass band, or if that was a band you became familiar with, sort of while while you were already had you already stepped into that uh, that world. Oh, good question. I, it would have been about the same time because um, where I heard them uh, back, there was a circuit back then. They used to play bars, like little tiny bars, and there was one in uh, Sombra, I think it was. It's down the river from Sarnia, and they had bluegrass bands there all the time. I can't remember all the names of the bands, but I remember the Flyers, and I remember Willie P. So it would have been around the same time, maybe a little earlier. Uh, I'm sure I was I was messing around with bluegrass, you know, because yeah. of that banjo record. But, um, yeah, he's an uh, amazing, amazing player. It might have been about the same time, or maybe I saw them first. I've never thought about it, to be honest. But I love the a, Flyers. Yeah, it was a curiosity. Me too. I, I think that was a, it was a great band, you know. So, um, yeah. Well, thanks for indulging that little that little part of the discussion. That's uh, it's really cool. I just think not many people, you know, most people, if they have a story of that grandeur, that's their one story of that mm. grandeur. It's uh, it's kind of a remarkable, almost like a, a whole life's worth of story right there. But what what age are you when you've already sort of when you're already a seasoned Opry pro? Like what what age are you by the time that that happens? Man, um, let's see, that would have been eighties. Well, but to answer your question my mind was blown. I mean, I was flying all over the world. I'd fly to Japan for a day and back again. I was getting offers. Um, I mean, I was on national television. I was playing with my idols. I was doing, you know, I played with the, the Jordan airs, a, a TV show with Elvis's backup band. It can go on and on and on. There's a, a bazillion stories, but it was one of those things that, um, I could hardly, um, process it. And, and I didn't sleep much. I was just so revved up and so grateful. And all I kept thinking was, I hope I don't screw it up. I hope I don't screw it up. And, uh, and I just feel so fortunate for the opportunity. I mean, um, I really need to write some things down. There's, I, have a, I could have a million stories for you about those days, you know. But wow. um, I think, yeah, there'd be quite a memoir from that, from that period. I can only imagine. I mean, the Opry was uh, was something really special, and the way Roy Acuff took me under his wing um, was was just phenomenal. And what I mean, what Jim and Jesse did for me, they would give up their televised portion of the Opry spot to put me on and feature me, so that I'd get that attention. And uh, you know, little Roy Lewis, the Lewis family did the same thing. The Lost and Found did the same thing for me. Um, it, it just goes on and on and on, and. 
you know, really at that time to play with first generation bands like that, uh, harmonica just, it, it wasn't there. It wasn't happening in that way. And it was really shaking the bushes and it was pissing people off. And, uh, oh, yeah. but I, I got my head around it. I mean, it would get to some points where people would turn their chairs around in the opposite direction or people would retune their instruments or things like that. And I had to almost, uh, form a punk rock attitude of, uh, well, you know, I'm just going to try and play so well that you can't deny it. And, <laughs> and then I became more mature and I realized, you know what, those same people that don't agree with what I do, I have so much in common with them because they don't agree with bringing in a harmonica into bluegrass because they love bluegrass so much. And I love bluegrass that much. So we have something in common right there. And the other thing was I played with Monroe and with, Jim and Jesse and with with all these people like really played together not showbiz but played and they liked my playing and those people they were originators they were improvisers they were pulling in influences from all over to sort of sculpt this this music that uh, some people tend to freeze in a particular point at its uh, growth and call that the standard way it should be done but those guys were continually growing and expanding and, and improvising. So, I mean, I felt like I had something in common with that, you know? Absolutely. It's, it's so interesting to think that you'd be in jam sessions where just Joe Banjo is turning his back on you because, you know, because he thinks you don't fit. And it's like, dude, I'm bonafide. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's, but it's really good for you too. I mean, it keeps your feet on the ground and, and, um, and it probably helped me play better. It probably forced me to not just sit back and to really, really try as hard as I could to fit in. And I mean, I wasn't learning anybody else's licks and I wasn't, I'd studied Jesse McReynolds mandolin patterns. I'd study banjo patterns. I'd learn fiddle things, but I had nobody to fall back on. What I was playing was quite different than what anybody else was doing. And, uh, I just tried to fit in rhythmically and add something that was heartfelt and legitimate rather than novelty blues licks thrown into that, uh, you know, to that style. But I still love it. I still, I love bluegrass. I think you and I both share a similar type of love for bluegrass. I think maybe what we both love most about it was its fire and its innovation. And my favorite players throughout the history are the ones that bent it a little bit, you know? Yep. And so when I see someone sort of bending it or even breaking it, I'd rather see that than someone playing it safe and playing it the way that, you know, whoever did. And, yeah. and so I, I totally appreciate that so much. I love people looking to innovate. And when I think about someone like Bill Monroe, I'm thinking like, I know he resented a lot of things that came right behind him as being opportunistic uh, efforts to sort of steal his thunder and, and steal from his commerce even in, to some degree. Yeah. But I think after a period of time, he must have also appreciated that there were other people coming along and, and, and harnessing or, or embracing his aesthetic of innovate and push and improvise. And I think that's probably why he loved guys like John Hartford and, you know, a lot of guys that came afterwards, he seemed to have a little bit more of an openness for than the guys who were right on his heels, like the Stanley brothers or Flatt and Scruggs or, you know, any number of other sort of fifties and, and even sixties era bands. But I think, you know, by the, by the time the seventies and eighties rolled around, he was really ready to see his music be kicked in the ass the same way he did with mountain dance tunes. Right. So, 
Yeah, I agree. And I, and I think back in the day when people were all jockeying for position too, like back in the early bands where you talk about Stanley Brothers and the other ones that were around Bill at that time, everybody, you know, Flat and Scruggs, everybody was duking it out to, you know, to find that that biggest spot. So I think once Bill had cemented the fact that people were calling him the father of bluegrass and it was being so copied, it was probably a little easier right from a, a little higher vantage point to accept some of the other stuff too. But I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. Post coronation. It's a little easier. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so, okay. We run the risk of being here for several hours. If we uh, actually try and uncover all of the impressive and important aspects of your story, I'm wondering if maybe we shouldn't talk a little bit about the documentary mm-hmm. and really just summarize what that, experience was and where it and where it led and then i'm i'm going to assume that moving the conversation forward after that 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 part of your life and what you created out of that experience that's probably been significantly impacted by COVID. so i'd be mm-hmm. curious to hear about that maybe i'm off off track there but let's at least talk about the documentary and about that particular experience and i don't think we have to tell the story because i think as much as anything i'd love to direct people to go and seek that out yeah. because yep. i think that really there's visual stuff going on in that story that's about as important as any of the narrative. So mm-hmm. I almost think like I'd rather them get a lot of that story from the the documentary if possible. Yeah. So if you don't mind just like touching on that and then, yeah, tell me how that changed your life and how <laughs> now COVID has also. Yeah, well, um, what Jackson is talking about is... Uh, uh, at the height of my career, like when I was explaining, I was flying to Japan for a day and back again. I was booked to uh, to go on a, a show to play for Canadian peacekeepers. And uh, it was a show tour. We were being treated really well. You know, we were big stars. We stopped for fuel in Goose Bay, Labrador. We were headed to Alert, basically North Pole, and then on to Bosnia. And uh, we stopped off in Goose Bay, Labrador to play a show. And I'd heard a little bit about these kids in uh, a community called Sheshishi, Innu community that were struggling with some things. So by hook or by crook, snuck away from a tour, ended up um, face-to-face with these kids who were um, sniffing gas uh, by the road. And I got out and played music for them. Some of that footage, it got filmed. Um, a film crew came, rolled up. And that footage ended up going all around the world. But that encounter with those kids changed my life. It was like all this fancy Opry, you know, trying to be the best, the number one, uh, staying on top of everything. Uh, I thought that's what music was about. And it is to some degree. But when those kids let me in and when it seemed to crack something open and we had a dialogue and they they shared, you know, with me and asked me about my family and these are kids with bags of gasoline to their faces, uh, that showed me that maybe there's even a more powerful reason for music. Maybe that was my biggest music lesson right there. So from then on, started uh, going into communities on my own, loaded up with harmonicas into fly-in communities and handing them out and um, starting lending libraries of instruments in communities all across Canada. A lot of, a lot of uh, communities that were really struggling. Uh, eventually started an organization called Arts Can Circle, where we rotate musicians and artists through those communities. It's been now, I think I've been doing it 22 years. Um, but yeah, it, it completely changed my track. It changed everything, everything. It was like, um, 
yeah, it just, it changed everything. Um, it was uh, a gift and, uh, now arts can circle is doing really, really well. And I've learned so much through the years. It used to be me. It was greatly supported by the folk community. I mean, you know, people that don't have any money to give or resources are the ones that give the most. And that was evident throughout the folk community. That was, uh, that was probably my biggest, um, awareness you talked about being aware of the folk community man that was shocking and and amazing uh how they got it anyhow built it um built the organization called arts can circle and uh rotating musicians and artists through communities starting lending libraries and um it it it's really been incredible what i've learned and what i continue to learn is that there's nothing more powerful in an indigenous community than having someone that looks like you talking to you and not a old white guy like me. And, uh, and I'm, I'm so thankful that I've learned this. It, I've seen it time and time again. So now arts can circle. We've got an, an indigenous executive director. We've got indigenous board members and there are indigenous musicians and artists going out on every trip now into every community and it's it's just beautiful that was the the big idea now um during covid we've shifted a bit but we're as busy as anything we've started something called arts can connects and basically they're videos everybody um everybody uses the word pivot i hate that word i just heard it too much but um what we did is we've just found ways to reach youth in these communities and to continue to share and that's through videos we have everybody from buffy saint marie to i can't name everybody but they're continuous they're going on constantly and that's the way we're we're connecting uh these days is through video and the the content creation itself is that being embraced by the kids in those communities is that i mean that's such a big part of how my, i've got an 11 year old and they they communicate through this these media and uh, so i can imagine that having access not only to the instruments but probably some of the content creation tools could really prop these kids up to express themselves and find a voice that you know that might otherwise be drowned out by by other things right yeah they're powerful they're powerful messages and even um they can be inspirational and um they just let you know that that you have friends out there still i mean some of the struggles are uh not everybody has good internet connection and uh making and not a lot of the schools are even open due to COVID. right there's um things are shifting all the time so now we're busy putting things on thumb drives and uh mailing them into communities. We'll just, we'll keep shifting until we figure out how we can get them to every kid. And really what we need to do is start two-way dialogue, not just one way, not just us sending videos with no information coming back. It needs to be both ways and, and to communicate because, I mean, COVID's not going to last forever. Things will be different, but, you know, we're still going to be here and we'll be in those communities again before you know it. So we just want to really support them and uh and be there for them during during this time you know oh that that's that's amazing what a powerful uh powerful thing you're doing there and and just a, a gesture of of reconciliation that on your part that predates uh the wider discussion by decades <laughs> doesn't yeah it? well just can well you know when you're confronted by something so blatant like um 
these these kids that was the first time i saw anything like that in our country you know i had no idea there were things like that going on let alone what i've learned about you know um lack of clean water and food security and education and all all these things that are just so rampant throughout our our community it just when you see something like that in these kids um you can't turn your back on it when you're face to face when you're not seeing it on the news when you're not reading it in a paper or in a seeing it on the screen on your phone when you're face to face with them and you can really feel it you can't turn your back on it you re you can't you know, how would you ever really sleep again if you thought you had an opportunity to um, to give those kids a voice somehow, you know, or to help amplify their voice? I don't give them anything, but just clear a path so that, that you can amplify their voice. So, yeah. Yeah, and you know, I think, you know, what underlies the entire experience or sort of almost what informs, I'm sure must what must have partially informed your decision to go out there uh, was your really firm belief that music is more powerful than most people imagine. And I think there's professional musicians out there applying this trade who don't really have a clue just how powerful a force music is. And I think your belief in that and your faith in that force is actually one of the more profound parts of the story because without that faith, I don't know that you end up there. Maybe you do know better than I do. But the way that I understand the story is without that fundamental faith that music can change lives, mm -hmm. are you there? Are you, are you in that community the first time when this whole big realization happens for you? Yeah, it's true. You know, when I, I always try and play um, brutally honest. I really do. I, it's like not licks or not. And it, sometimes it might not be pretty, but but I try to... Uh, it might be partially due to the synesthesia, I don't know, but I try to just play something that, that's powerful that will explain either who you are or, um, I don't know, it's it's like, it's just a very human, very basic human thing, you know, and, and as musicians, we're, we're gifted with, uh, with this ability to, uh, to connect in that way and that responsibility to connect in that way, if you use it. You know, if you don't just use it to sell pop or something, you know what I mean? Like there's a really, it, it's a really special thing. And, uh, you know, it's cliche, but it it's both ways. And I mean, you're, you're playing for this audience of these kids and it's sharing both ways. They cracked me open more than, than I got to them. I really did. And, uh, and it hasn't left, it hasn't left a bit. So well, I think um, that's the interesting thing about the story is that it's a story of healing, but it's mostly your story of healing. Yeah, 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 true. Yeah. But a quest to find healing for a broader range and group of people. It's it's really noble, and I'm I'm really just so honored to be able to talk to you, Mike. It's been uh, it's been a really great time spent here, catching up and getting a little bit of a handle on how things have been for you. Before we wrap it up. Um, you, you you have anything on the horizon that's uh, that you want to let people know about or is there any other observations from this time that you think are, are worthy of sharing with us well just that uh, don't forget to be really grateful i mean um, me personally you know i've got a a warm place to be we've got clean water you know my family's here 
Um, I've never been home this much in my whole life. Uh, there's a lot of things to actually be grateful for. And, you know, you could, you could think, oh, I've lost this show and I've lost that show and that European tour and this, you know, I can't release a record. That means nothing. I mean, if you have your family and you have your health and if you can find a way to be creative during this COVID thing, like if it doesn't squash you, if you can find a way to still be creative in some fashion during this, you're going to come out way stronger when it's, when it's over and it will be over. That's great advice. Yeah. I, I, I concur with that. I think, uh, finding, finding your way through this, if you can be creative, you'll really have something to prop yourself up with when you come out the end. I, I wouldn't beat yourself up if, if it's getting the best of you, these times are tough to adjust to yeah, man. as well, but, but you're right. Like if you can come out the other side, having learned something from this experience, I know lots of people who are their shifts or their pivots for lack of a better word, uh, entail a whole new discipline or two. And those new skills are only going to serve the original platform that they offered to the, to their audiences. So I think that there's all sorts of ways that this is going to make things better. And that's been kind of a recurring theme of our, our discussions too. So sort of trying to find a silver lining. I think Grant's a great producer and he always tends to find these folks who can spin something positive out of this instead of, uh, you know, just explaining how it's been toil. <laughs> oh, Grant's great. And just remember, it's okay to be on fire for five days and then two days of eating buster bars. You know what I mean? It's okay. Yes. It is okay. I concur <laughs> with that as well. <laughs> so what about any new material? You got new material coming at us? I do. I have a new album in the can that'll be out on uh, Borealis and True North. Um, just waiting. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's I'm really proud of the record and um, it's got some wonderful players on it. You know, Kevin Bright and Jeff Bird and um, Jeff Getty and Art Harachian and uh, who else is on there? Corey James Mitchell, Polly Harris, uh, one of um, a buddy of mine that plays with Tyler Childers, um, Jesse Wells, and the artwork. I, I sat in with Tyler Childers at the Fillmore in Detroit just before COVID clamped things down. And I met the guy that did the artwork for uh, uh, Tyler's last record. It's brilliant. He works for Marvel Comics. And oh, he took, wow. He took pity on me and he did the artwork for the album cover uh colonel tony moore so yeah, that's done too so it's all just waiting right now to see what happens and and that that waiting is is all to do with wanting to time your launch so that you can support the record properly yeah because i don't i don't know how to do it i mean to be honest i i have a lot of respect for people that are live streaming and all that for me it's like flexing your muscles in front of a mirror i don't get the same i don't get it you know and I, i'm not wired that way and hopefully I'll, I'll evolve so that I do. But right now I don't. Well, don't push yourself to evolve too much. Just, uh, you know, just <laughs> managing right, the shifts is enough, man. Yeah. yeah hey, yeah. Mike, thanks so much for taking time out with us today on the Home Roots podcast. Um, I really encourage folks to go and, and check the documentary. Uh, you can go to, uh, I think, artscancircle.ca. Um, we'll have it. And Arts Can Connects is the uh, the um, the new pivot that uh, is happening. <laughs> and I, there may be a link on my website. I'm not sure. But you can find it. It's called A Walk in My Dream is the name of it. But you can find it online for sure and, and watch it. Yeah, I just want to really say 
I hope people take the time to dig in more to your story. I really appreciated all your insights here today, and I hope you stay safe. Hey, well, thanks, you guys. It's nice to, uh, to have me on. Oh, uh, Mike, thank you so much, really. It's, uh, it's really great to meet you. I hope we get to hang out somewhere down the road here. We will. It'll happen. Yeah, no doubt. We will. All right. <laughs> See you guys. Yeah, man. See, See you, Mike. You All right, Take care. Bye. Wow. Great to catch up with Mike Stevens. Um, that organization, Arts Can, that is just an inspiring uh, an inspiring organization with an incredible mission and love the work that they're doing. Um, we want to make sure that, uh, we, we let our audience know that, uh, that's, that's a worthwhile thing to support. If you've got any, anything you can support, look into that. Just an in- incredible story all around there. Mike Stevens. Thanks. Thanks to him for, uh, getting on the, the zoom with us to, to chat about things. And thanks to you for tuning in. Don't be strangers. Come back around next time on the Home Roots Podcast. Till then, see you later. Ooh.